Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes. For those of you who missed our last podcast, I do recommend you jump back and take a listen. Dr. Jim Wagner dives into instrument-assisted treatment and cupping in that episode. He shared indications, contraindications, and trends on both of the topics. And our Hand Therapy Hero guest, with his avid background as a professional bodybuilder and powerlifter, is going to discuss today our first topic of blood flow restriction treatment. Can you go ahead and please tell us a little bit about the technique? Yeah, I feel like I'm a kid in a candy shop. This is, this is such great stuff. You know, as an occupational therapist, treat the person as a whole, right? I'm not just a hand therapist. I'm not a strength trainer. I'm an occupational therapist who does this, who gets the opportunity to do these things. So I want to stay abreast of all the, everything that's out there. So um, as a strength and conditioning trainer as well, um, I've always um, loved to incorporate that stuff into the therapy itself. So a few years back, I began to read more about blood flow restriction. I don't drink the Kool-Aid on everything right away. You know, I don't jump right on the bandwagon. And I started to see this stuff come out more and more, maybe four or five years ago or so. And I didn't make a statement on any of this stuff or, or put my seal of approval until I really understood the mechanics behind it, the safety, the efficacy, uh, because there's lots of different products out there. Some people were just taking a strap and putting it over their arm and, you know, saying they're occluding their, their blood flow. I'm like, well, what is that? Mm. You know, is it safe? Do we really occlude our arterial blood flow? Um, and so I began to do a lot of uh, research and reading the studies and stuff that are out there and realized um, that uh, it's come a long ways. And there's actually some really good evidence on um, reduction of age-related sarcopenia and also disuse atrophy and stuff like that with the use of blood flow restriction training. And I understood a little more about the physiology behind it and the safety of it. So then from that point, I began to look at products. Which ones can I put in my clinic that are safe, efficacious, um, and also things that I can use with multiple people and all that good jazz. So there's a few major players. And then finally, um, we've made our decision based on the partner with a particular company. And I use all this stuff personally. Okay. Everything, everything that I talk about, I don't, I'm not a salesman. I don't sell something. I, I, I use it myself. So I train with this particular Be Strong uh, band um, uh, quite often. And I'll tell you, it's really cool. Um, so, uh, what aspect of your training are you utilizing the band for? So, th there is a difference between a cuff and a band, and so we can talk about it at some point. But really, what we're doing here with with blood flow restriction training, it's we're not occluding the arterial inflow. Okay, what we're doing is we're actually occluding the venous outflow. And so, what happens is distal to that, whether you use a cuff or whether you use a band distal that you create a metabolic environment. They call this um, a disturbance of homeostasis. We get an increase in metabolites that can't be pushed back out after exercise. We get an increase in an acidic environment. Um, Deoxygenated blood can't move back out. 
So what happens is it causes um, the brain to signal more recruitment of not just type one fibers, but type two A and two B fibers that are normally recruited, recruited later on under heavy load exercise, a high volume, heavy load exercise. So those type ones are more oxygen dependent. So they get fatigued out super quick. Mm-hmm. They're still getting arterial inflow. They're just not getting deoxygenated blood and new stuff to come back out of there. And it's creating a metabolic crisis in that limb distally. So what it does is you fatigue those fibers much faster and begin to recruit those ones that are normally recruited under heavy, heavy load conditions. And now you have the effect of that without having to put the stress on the body. Without actually having the heavy load. Without actually having the heavy load. You actually use about 20%, maybe 25% of your one rep maximum. And you do more of a, of a um, higher intensity interval, like higher repetitions with less rest period at a much lower load. So I've used it with my distal bicep tendon repairs who maybe have an endo button repair or something like that. I can start them moving earlier mm-hmm. with a little bit of light resistance. Say if I'm using the TheraBand CLX bands and they're like the yellow ones are like 3.7 pounds and the doc only wants me to use nothing under nothing over five pounds. So I can use, I can be very specific and dial into that now and I can do some maybe isometric contraction or maybe some eccentric work. And, and still get the same effect as a heavier load, but with less, less risk of injury. And the thing that's cool about it is that you actually see not just a local change distal to the cuff or band, but you actually see uh, greater serum um, increases in growth hormone, mm-hmm. IGFs, uh, testosterone releases uh, from the anterior pituitary uh, with growth hormone because they've done uh, blood serology, serum tests and stuff like that and show that because it's one of my patients calls it the, the cheaters. So it actually tricks the body into thinking. So you see a release in greater hormone responses. And so there's actually a good study that came out a little while ago that showed actually the benefits of the contralateral side as well. So it's really cool. So it's a lot of uh, neuroscience behind it as well. And when done safely, it can be very effective. I've got a couple of cool case studies I'm hoping to get working on here and to show the, the effect it had um, in their, in their um, meeting the goals. So. Sorry, is it primarily utilized on patients that you need them to get moving faster because they're athletes, or is it utilized across the board with all your patients? If so, needed? there's very few contraindications to it. One again, lymphedema, you know, DVTs, uh, open wounds, those types. If you're safe to exercise, you can use the treat. Okay, if you're safe to to use it, um, and so. Uh, as long as you, and you can even exercise, you can even use this with people who are hypertensive. Mm-hmm. I have high blood pressure. I say it's because I married a Polish woman. Um, that's why I have high blood pressure. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody, but anyways, uh, I, I have high blood pressure. I exercise with them all the time. So if you're, if you're medicated, you're controlled, your hypertension is controlled, you're exercising in a pre-hypertensive state most of the time anyways, or hypertensive state. So we, we, um, we can use that with them. And I've used it on an untrained um, distal bicep tendon repair and gained seven centimeters off um, the arm initially. I started at maybe six weeks post-op. One case I started four weeks post-op with it at a very, very low load. And within the eight week total, um, I actually gained seven centimeters. So the uninvolved side was larger than the involved side, or I'm sorry, the, the, the involved side was actually larger than the uninvolved side. So it really is quite, quite, uh, telling quite quite interesting. I'm sure that patient said, "Hey, we got to do the other arm now because yeah, it doesn't yeah. match." 
it's funny because yeah, we actually did and I documented it throughout we actually did we started to put the bands on both sides um, and so what it is is as many people use the word occlusion and so I, I we don't call it occlusion training I call it blood flow restriction training so and really it's that venous output more than anything else so what I like about the B strong bands is that I use there are some great products out there um, these ones in my opinion are very very safe so I can use them in the clinic and not have a worry when applied correctly that I'm going to occlude any arterial inflow because I've seen it on a Doppler. I've, done, I've had it done to me where I've taken a, cu a cuff width does matter. So you can have a, a wide like blood pressure cuff, inelastic blood pressure cuff, and you'll occlude the arterial inflow at 150 millimeters of mercury, right? So when you take a blood, we take a blood pressure. With the B-Strong band, it's a thinner, more elastic band with a barrel design on the inside of it, I can take that up to 500 millimeters of mercury and still not occlude my arterial inflow to the extremity. So, and I've seen that in person, I've seen it, I've had it done to me, uh, and I still, and I've had it done both ways. It's very, very, um, very, very interesting. And it's a lot more comfortable, to tell you the truth, because of the width itself allows you to still contract that muscle. Imagine putting a very, very wide cuff on a bicep. When you get that flexion of the bicep, it's gonna ball up. With those wide cuffs, it doesn't allow a really good contraction to occur. With that shorter, more narrow band, it allows some expansion. So we're pushing blood flow back, back through uh, from the venous system. And now what we're doing is getting a good muscle pump and without occluding the artery. So it's really, really cool. You got to try it to understand it. Yeah, I really am having a little bit of trouble visualizing it. So I'm definitely going to have to dive in a little more and see the technique, but the, it is quite amazing. It's like almost doing a workout with half the work or even more that's than really, half the, le even more so. That's really what it is. I can take a band and usually we'll put the band in the upper extremity, it's usually the upper extremity. You'll take the band just below the deltoid tuberosity and you'll wrap it around there. Okay. Just a little bit of, just, just snug. And let's say maybe you'll have a mid-sized arm, maybe 150 millimeters of mercury. You'll get a little fatigue. We're looking for fatigue because that's all we're looking for. And so I'll place that on there. And then I'll have them do a 10 pound weight on one side and then the other arm unbanded, nothing. So by the time we get done with about 30 to 40 repetitions of maybe a five to 10 pound weight, it feels like you had a whole workout, a significant workout on the, on the, on the banded side, as opposed to the, the unbanded side where you could probably do another five sets on there. Mm -hmm. And so then, and I've even had some people try it and they'll come in the next day like, oh my gosh, I feel like I, I did an hour workout and only did like three rounds of 20 to 30 repetitions with like 30 seconds rest and reset and it's crazy the feel you get. Um, so it's, it's really, it's gonna have some great implications. I don't say it's gonna, it's, it, is, it does have some great implications for those disuse atrophy, even in the aspect of tendinopathies. Because again, what it's just, it also has been shown to have increase uh, in, in um, uh, our blood flow to the, to, uh, um, the, um, the soft tissues, uh, increase in capillary regeneration, uh, endothelial budding and stuff like that has occurred with it in some of the studies. Um, and there's some, there's some great um, uh, um, uh, um, uses for it as well. So I so use it in a lot sounds of Sounds like a technique that could really take off for some people that haven't utilized it and, and yeah. really give them a, a nifty tool to add to the toolbox. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is just a tool for the toolbox. I use it with a lot of my, um, my rotator cuff repairs. People have okay. rotator cuff repair. 
Um, again, where's the band distal to the rotator cuff right around the deltoid tuberosity. But again, remember, we're getting the same. Um, my young high school athletes, people will come in with a junk term of scapulodyskinesia or something like that. Um, I use it with some total shoulder replacements when they're ready to start exercising. Um, I've used it with tendinopathies in the distal extremity. And, uh, and I have one particular person who had an elbow, lateral elbow tendinopathy. Uh, we didn't even work his grip strength. His grip strength work up, well, went up probably about 15, 20 pounds. Oh, wow. Um, the use compared to the opposite side. Why? Because, again, you're getting a release of those chemical mediators, growth hormones, those types of things as well, along with uh, that, that recruitment of those type 2As and 2Bs muscle fibers that you would get under heavy load. So it's really, it's really freaking cool. It's pretty cool stuff. So um, I highly suggest you reading some stuff about it and looking into those, to the products, um, but also making sure again, that you're safe and effective with it. Because just like any tool, if you don't know what you're doing with it, you should get some good education on it. And that leads me to our last area I kind of wanted to touch on, which has been, you know, a popular topic for years. And comes and goes in popularity, I think, is the kinesiology taping. Sure. So I wanted to know how you've utilized this treatment technique throughout your many years as a practicing therapist. Again, and, and I, I've, uh, I've taken a lot of kinesiology taping courses over the years, probably at least, like, at least 12 that I can remember or think of over the years, keep track of them. So I started years back, and, and it, it got really confusing for me for a little while. Um, all these different types of things, like I have to use a certain percentage of tension this way. I have to go proximal to distal this way. I use this particular design for this particular condition. So I really stopped using it because I kind of got overwhelmed a little bit with it and wasn't really sure how to use it in a, a just a generally um, solid way in my practice. So uh, probably again about probably six eight years ago I started delving back into it my wife is using it again with some of her pediatric patients I, I got um, introduced to some people at performance health and began to try some of the TheraBand kinesiology tape with their stretch tape indicators on there and so I looked at got to meet some great people I got to meet this guy named Phil Page who was a research uh, director for performance health at the time he's a great clinician great guy uh, and makes a great jambalaya it's from New Orleans it's a uh, great um, <laughs> So um, anyways, we talked a lot about kinesiology taping and, it, and its, um, its effect. So really what we've come down to, and he did a, great, a lot of great work on really synthesizing the research on really what does it do. So um, we really come to find there's a great article by Lim and Tay. I think it's, uh, Phil was saying, I forget what year it is. I'll, I'll get that article to you about, about um, and he's got a great um, article uh, page at all that, that synthesizes the research on taping. So really, what is it best for? Pain relief, short-term pain relief, and muscle and joint support. So then uh, we begin to look at it, and it's a lot of sensory input. It's the fascial system again. The afferent sensory input, as it's transmitted to the dorsal horn, it goes to the substantia gelatinosum, all the way up to the spinal tracts, and, and you, all this other stuff that goes on with it in the fraction of a second. So um, really what we took a look at is that it's, it's, it's really putting some sensory input through the integument. So to make better motor pattern outputs. So we also looked at it is that we found out that, you know, does one direction perform this, does proximal to distal facilitate and distal to proximal inhibit? And we found that it really doesn't matter. Sometimes just laying the tape on somebody's skin and yes, there's certain ways to do that. Maybe you'll try something different with them. Um, it, it still sometimes has a benefit. 
to that afferent sensory input. Um, so we really, and he actually simplified the whole process by taking a look and saying, okay, so instead of 10% tension with a lot of this tape, what's 10% tension, right? It's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. So what's 15% um, tension? Is there tension on the paper? Is there on the tape? Is what's, you know, what's 50% tension? Well, I'm going to pull it out all the way. I'm going to back off, I think 50%, and then I'm going to try to apply it and see if that's going to work out. Um, so now what he did is he put these stretch tape indicators on the tape. So mm -hmm. if I want to use 25% tension, which the literature supports for, let's say, fluid reduction or, you know, um, sensory input or pain relief, short-term pain relief, I'll use 25% tension. Snap my tape, put it on. I, when I pull out my little hexagons, the small hexagon, and I pull it out and all sides are equal, voila, that's 25% tension. Mm -hmm. now I have consistency in the clinic every time. If I want 50% for muscle and joint support, um, which the literature supports, uh, I'll snap that tape in whatever fashion I want to apply it based on the clinical presentation of the patient. When all that bigger hexagon is all stretched out and all sides are equal, that's 50% tension. So not uh, every tape gives you that opportunity. No, no. Okay. And I was so confused for the longest time because, oh my gosh, I think this is 25% tension. Sure. Um, you know, and so that's one of the greatest things about that itself. So now I can be consistent amongst clinicians in the clinic and, um, and myself so I can say consistently each time I'm going to try to, because we want to have reproducibility, right? We don't just want to throw something on the wall and see if it sticks. Right. Um, we want to kind of be as consistent as possible. And I've also found that if I apply the tape proximal to distal or distal to proximal, I can still get the same outcomes no matter which way I apply it. So it challenges the way the old learning sometimes, and we always, things change over the years. And there's been many studies have shown even with glute meat activation and stuff like that, as you apply the tape one direction, not direction, you still get an improvement in activation. And a lot of times what that is, is just afferent sensory stimulation. They looked at some, some studies with grip strength. Has the grip strength gotten better, stronger because of the tape? Or is it that they can just sense it better? They get better proprioception, better um, sensation through the integument, and they can activate that soft tissue, that muscle, that muscle system, and get a better, more effective grip. You see what I'm saying? I do. So it didn't just all of a sudden make you stronger. What it did is allow your body, you know, how many patients, you know, they say, hey, I want to have them do some serratus anterior work. How many people can really activate a serratus anterior half the time? You've got to get that um, muscle control working again. So if they can feel that, now they can activate it more efficiently. So there's lots of different ways to try. And so sometimes you just got to try it and see what happens. I think that all four of these regimes that you've, touched on so brilliantly for us are great techniques and it sounds like you utilize a lot of them in the same sessions is that what i'm understanding yeah so here's what i do yeah here has my basic treatment algorithm is is, is i'll assess the patient uh, um regionally i look at that whole remember that remember that concept of regional interdependence i'm going to look from head to toe when they walk into my clinic i'm already checking them out so it's weird you know i'm like hey how they walk in how they taking their jacket off how they put their purse on the thing or whatever they're doing. And so I'm going to do a quick screen, movement screen, right? We're movement specialists. We want to see how people are moving. They don't give a damn whether they can have an increase in 10 degrees elbow flexion. What they want to do is they want to have greater elbow flexion so they can comb their hair, mm -hmm. right? So they can, they can do better. They want to function. That's what we do as occupational therapists. So what I do is I'll assess them first. 
I'll scan the region, I'll look things over, maybe I'll use the tools, maybe I'll just do a general assessment, check out whether maybe the joint mobility is because of a capsular restriction or maybe it's a extra capsular, maybe it's a stability motor control. So I do a lot of things like um, motor uh, um, functional movement screens, like uh, some of use us use some of the SFMA stuff or the movement screens just to see how they're moving, right? Are they creating abnormal, abnormal movement patterns? Um, are they compensating because of weakness in one particular area? Once I determine whether that it's a stability motor control issue or it's a joint problem, then I'll pick my tool, right? Mm -hmm. I want to know objectively, what can I move to next? I don't just want to throw something and see, oh, I'm going to do this with everybody. Um, so I'm going to go, if it's a mobility issue because of a joint restriction, maybe I'll go to my hands-on manual therapy. Remember, we're not defined by our treatment modality. We, you know, uh, so we look at that tool, how can I implement that in to either gain stability, motor control, or need to mobilize something? So if I mobilize something, well, maybe with a tool or my hands or done some manual therapy, whatever, or I use some cupping or whether the hot grips instruments, whatever, then I'm going to go ahead and put them into a more um, functional position. Mm -hmm. So why, why we get stuck in this thing where I, I've had just had a student that came in and she's like, oh, my last hand therapy clinic was awful. I'm like, why? She goes, they came in with everybody and they dipped them in paraffin and bent their finger. Every patient got the same thing. It was, and I, you know, not naming anything. I don't even know what it was at, but this is what her experience. She goes, this is very different here. I'm like, it's because we need to treat every patient as an individual. Not everybody needs paraffin in some thing tending glides. So um, that's the number one way to get burnt out too, by the way. <laughs> you know, do the same thing over and over again, hoping it's going to work. So what we do, and then I go ahead and I'll use the kinesiology tape to tape them in a functional position where they're supposed to be. Let's say I can take a little piece of tape and put it on someone's lower trap and bring their, you know, get some scapular retraction depression. And then um, I had someone who had a stroke like that. And then when they round their shoulders out, the tape pulls on the integument and they pull themselves back up. It just mm -hmm. gives feedback. It's not magic. It's, it's not magic tape. It's sensory input. So I do that with my patient. And then they're able to function in that position I want them to be. They shouldn't be in the tape forever. It's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. Or a short-term, excuse me, the other way. It's a short-term solution. We want to get them moving into later on down the road. So they don't have to tape for the rest of their life. They don't have to live in that tape. And then we're going to strengthen. Then we're going to move them. We're going to move them. So there's no sense in mobilizing something if you're not going to move it. It makes no sense. I use this example. I kept getting some local um, exercise athletes in our area with shoulder problems. Um, and I knew what the problem was when they came in. They're like, they had overhead issues. Uh, they couldn't do a squat very good. They're having troubles in their shoulders. So yeah, they had some shoulder mobility issues, but really what the problem was is their posture was awful and they had subtalar joint mobility issues and their hips were tight. So we came for a couple of treatment sessions. I'm like, Hey man, let's just get beyond the, I'm an OT and I can't take a look at anything from the fingers up or down or something like that. So I said, let's look at your mobility, your hips, and my strength and conditioning background. So I worked on some, some showed them some hip mobility and some, some ankle mobility skills to get them moving. Looked at their posture, taped them. They came back in a couple of days later and said, listen, my shoulder's a lot better. <laughs> Why? Because we looked at that whole concept of regional interdependence. They were leaning so far forward, it was putting pressure on their shoulder. So we fixed that area, looked at their thoracic spine, and then they did great. I haven't seen them back. So because we have to take a look at the body as a whole instead of getting stuck into this little box of, I only work from the wrist down. So um, I think once we get out of our own way and think about people or think about people differently like that, it's going to make a very effective treatment algorithm. 
So I will, I will assess, mobilize whatever techniques I want to, tape, corrective exercises, and then what I do after that, reassess. If it doesn't work, I go back and start again. I, I love how you look outside the box and look at the whole person. Their movement patterns is quite key. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as a breathing pattern. Absolutely. So looking at the whole person is something that sometimes we as hand therapists yeah. forget that we are occupational therapists and looking at the whole person and totally functionally yeah. what's missing. So it, I'm so happy that you brought that into this discussion and that we're not looking at what we do to an actual finger or a wrist, but what we're doing to a whole system. And I think that's key because if you take a look at the Thomas Myers, the fascial trains, and there's a lot more fascial science that's out there. We have these lines that are interconnected. Um, you can work um, uh, thoracolumbar fascia. People always say, oh, I have tight hamstrings. Well, you assess the hamstrings, they look pretty good, all that stuff. Then you do some work on the plantar fascia and the thoracolumbar fascia, and all of a sudden, hey, they've got a greater straight leg raise or they can touch their toes now. I didn't touch my hamstrings at all. It was that those, those posterior fascia lines. Am I saying that we have to definitely work within our scope of practice? Am I saying I treat hip patients in my subtalar joint? No, I don't. But there's no reason. I remember when I trained as an occupational therapist, we had to learn the whole body. I had to learn my lower extremity muscles, my manual muscle testing, goniometry for the upper and lower. But I can, with my clinical experience, assess those particular areas. I'm telling you, you go to social media and you get that stuff all over the place. Why would we not embrace that and be able to help our patient better understand that and then send them to your friendly neighborhood physical therapist? or a person who specializes in that area. We, we need to be very careful. Oh, I only, I only work in this box here. I'm not saying you gotta treat hip problems or you know, spinous issues. What I'm saying is be, be able to understand how the body as a whole is integrative and works. And then in that particular area you can work within, be, refer that person out or assess those areas and help them out. If you can't, then send them someplace else. That's great. Um, and, and, and you tell you the truth, that brings my patients back. Uh, when I tell them that I don't know, but I know where to send them, they come back all the time. Um, and I think that makes a whole much more rich experience with, with, with our patient. So uh, I, I found that to be very um, efficacious over the years of my practice. I love that. I think that that was a wonderful way to wrap up this session. And I value your time and expertise. And I've learned so much in, in our short meeting here. And I look forward to getting more details from you on your additional upcoming courses. And I'm going to encourage everyone listening to this wonderful podcast to send an email to info at handtherapy.com. And Jim is going to be kind enough to give us a summary of some of the references he spoke about and perhaps even a couple links that we can get to. And we'll also put you on our list for learning about upcoming courses that he's going to have. And thank you again, for your time. And we really value you. Thank you so much, Susan. I really appreciate it. And if there's anything I can do to help out, it's all about sharing knowledge and, and helping our patients. Uh, we're servants and that's what we need to be doing all the time. So, but thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.